Some years ago, I came across a writing from the Reverend Howard Thurman, who is a co-founder of the Church for the Fellowship of All Peoples in San Francisco. And this writing of his has continued to inspire my own heart and my own life and my practice of equanimity. It's from a collection of meditations entitled, Deep is the Hunger. And he says, How may we work in the world courageously and intelligently on behalf of a decent world, without despair and complete fatigue? What are the resources for personal rehabilitation and renewal that we may be able to look out on life with all of its vicissitudes of cruelty and transient joys, with quiet eyes and a tranquil spirit. This seeing the world with quiet eyes, as uh, Reverend Thurman speaks about in his writing here, is something that I constantly go back to. It's one of the subjective experiences of equanimity, the ability to look at the world with eyes that aren't reactive, with a heart that isn't reactive. A heart that has some inner calm, inner quiet. A heart that's spacious, and within that spaciousness there can be a great balance, not leaning to one side or to another. And from a place of seeing much more, because we can stand in the middle of all things instead of taking sides. We can see all sides while staying intimately connected with our own hearts, with the situations around us. Equanimity is such an important subject to reflect on because there's so much in this world that we live in that pushes and pulls us to one side or another. We're bombarded by an overwhelming amount of news. I think the term is TMI, too much information that we live with. The vulnerability of the environment we hear about over and over again in ways that make us jerk inside one way or another, clinging to how we think it should be, uh, resisting how it is, and having ill will and aversion to those who can't see it in our way. Hunger and social injustice, the vulnerability of the economic political and military situations all over the world, tragedy and loss. They're just all around from every side you hear of this, near and far. They're continuously pulling our attention to dwell on the negative or to be in a place in our hearts and minds that aren't beneficial for ourselves, for others to dwell on. We react with fear, with hatred, with blame, with ill will. And then to distance ourselves from that inner suffering we see in ourselves, that fear, hatred, blame, ill will, and to kind of close us down to what's happening in the outer world because it's so hard to bear sometimes. Our consumer society lures us with opportunities to encourage an obsession of wanting 
and accumulating, feeding and fueling and normalizing addiction and obsession, obsession, normalizing craving. This is supposed to be good. There are names of uh, companies and perfumes and whatnot in the world. Uh, magazines that at the top it says, you will want what's in these covers, uh, in between these covers. This is how it is in the world we live in. It's, we can't avoid living with this among us. These are universal conditions that are just as prevalent today as they were in similar ways in the time of the Buddha. When you read the scriptures, the holy scriptures, the Pali Canon, and the different commentaries that were written even you know, hundreds of years later, you will hear about the strife and the wars and, and the ways people even tried to kill the Buddha. David Loy, a Buddhist scholar and Zen teacher, of our time, laid out his view for our consideration. And I must admit that what he's saying is perhaps not totally true, but we can see the truth in, in these points in some ways, at some angles, to some degree. He says, we live in a culture where our economic system institutionalizes greed. The military system institutionalizes ill will and fear. And the media institutionalizes delusion. So all around us, there's greed, hatred, and delusion, what are called in uh, the Dharma, the three roots of suffering, sometimes three poisons, they're called. They all work together to reinforce each other. It's understandable that we feel vulnerable and anxious, We feel a lot of anxiety in our lives. There is a a proliferation of depression and the opposite going on uh, within our own families, within our own intimate relationships. The Buddha talked about the eight worldly conditions that I laid out this afternoon that are constantly pulling and pushing us in our lives. Praise and blame, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, pleasure and pain. Over and over again, you can, in one sitting, you can feel knocked about, wanting one thing, avoiding another, running towards pleasure, running away from pain. They trigger the inner reactive, unwholesome mind states, these causes and conditions in the world, these eight worldly conditions, bring up states in our own hearts that are very, very painful. So, of course, we see it on a worldly level, we see it on a local level in our communities, and we feel it right around us, very near, in our own families, my own children, grown children, and my grandchildren, very close by, you can some of the things you can read in the news happen to my very own family and to yours indeed also so it's really helpful to ask ourselves important questions these days 
make important decisions around this, how we're going to face all of this, what qualities are we going to develop and engender in ourselves in order to meet the world that's triggering a lot of pain in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. So some of the questions I ask for myself are, how can I maintain a balance of staying attentive yet open towards these worldly conditions? Attentive and open. Because a lot of times I open the news either on the computer or in a newspaper or in magazines and I just don't want to see it. I just close down to it. And I literally make myself read things, read books about historical accounts of people who have gone through difficult times. Alcoholism, drug abuse, uh, all kinds of abuse in this country and in other countries. How can we maintain a balance of staying attentive yet compassionate, soft-hearted, yet courageously open towards ourselves and others so that we may see what's going on very clearly but not react with uh, other moments that will harm ourselves and harm the world. What we're doing in retreat like this is we're learning to give ourselves the permission to explore, to open to what's difficult to open to. Many of you have said in in interviews and check-ins already that you're learning how to see what's uh, difficult to see, experience what's difficult to experience. And you're learning that meditation is not just about having blissful experiences. We come to practice in the beginning thinking that I want to open to calm, to peacefulness, to bliss, and nothing is wrong with that. But sometimes in our kind of striving to open to that, we don't allow ourselves or we don't give ourselves a permission or sometimes we think it's wrong. It's not really even meditation at all to open to what's difficult. We avoid it. We close down. We build up uh, unseen resistance, unseen aversion to what's difficult. And then pretty soon it just has to bust open and very, very difficult to handle at that time. So we're giving ourselves permission to accept ourselves in these changing conditions of being human and to accept change in our bodies, in our lives, to see the ups and downs of life with quiet eyes, with quiet eyes. To be able to live within the fluctuations and vicissitudes of this world, it's really not easy. It's really helpful to come to a place where we can gain some calm, we can gain some place of quiet and uh, stillness in our bodies, in our minds. This truly helps us to open to the difficulties that we must face in our lives. So we need this quality of equanimity. We need this quality as much as or even more so than love. We're not as familiar with this balance, this spacious balance, 
as we are with love. Love or metta, this unconditional kindness, is spoken about very often in many, many traditions. And uh, equanimity or this spacious balance, not as often. So we need this quality to navigate not just the outer terrain of our lives, but to navigate this inner terrain. What goes on when we're quiet and it's still? I mean, in a way, uh, all of us are preparing for the time when we can't move anymore, when there, there is nothing we can do but be still. We're preparing for the time when we can have a mind and heart that's so spacious that it can open to the things that come along with illness and old age and death. So equanimity implies not just this spaciousness, but balance as well. When we are experiencing true equanimity, it has this quality of balance within this spaciousness. So it's not this kind of balance as if you're teeter-tottering on a razor's edge, but it feels like you have a really wide stance in life, very wide stance, where nothing will topple you over. That you, you feel like you, if you do get toppled over, your body, your mind, your heart can come back to some middle ground that can see everything without attachment or without aversion. I'm very often reminded of there are places in the scriptures where equanimity is described in um, very elemental ways, very natural ways, like a mountain, described as a mountain. Those of you who have taken up this mindfulness-based stress reduction, you know that mountain meditation where one can sit like a mountain. And whatever comes one's way, whether it's pain in the body or places of feeling betrayed or hurt or sad or overjoyed or clinging to that joy or whatever it is, we can feel like there's an ability to just be there with it without toppling over, to see those experiences come and go like rainstorms come and go over a mountain, like thunder and lightning may strike. But it's okay. That also is impermanent. The ability to kind of come back to a place of being stable, calm inside, even if we're, we get a little shaky temporarily because of those vicissitudes that come in life. So there can be that spaciousness, that balance that comes with all life that brings, uh, all life brings to us. And in that spaciousness, there can be a lot of clarity. So that, that kind of balance, spaciousness, can enable the mind to see things clearly because there isn't an avoiding of what's going on. There isn't a pushing away or resisting or closing down or striking out at if it's difficult. There isn't ignoring 
or there isn't covering over it with anything else. There's just this being with things as they are right in this moment. The ability to say, as I introduced this afternoon, this is how it is right now. Not necessarily forever because everything's impermanent, but this is how it is right now. I always like to accentuate that right now part because if we say this is how it is, just that, and it isn't, it isn't implying there that it will change, although we can understand it that way without those words there, if we don't have the understanding that it will change, then we think that this is how it is now, so this is how it is, will be forever. And this is when there's a lot of delusion in the mind, when you can think that way, when you do think that way. So this is how it is right now. That's one of the phrases. Praise and blame arise and pass away. Gain and loss arise and pass away. Birth and death arise and pass away. These are the conditions of life. I think Steve is chanting in the evening all about this impermanence, this coming and going of all conditions. And when we can accept them with this mind that's spacious and clear and balanced, then there can be the deepest peace when this happens. So in a way, people ask, well, why am I doing this? Why am I being in this retreat? What, what good is being quiet and being still and opening to what's going on inside? Well, first of all, when we open to what's going on, we can see that it's unbearable. It's hard to handle. And are we going to just keep avoiding that and running away from that? This is what is called samsara. Running away from what is unbearable and running toward constant pleasure over and over again, the hedonic treadmill. This is samsara. This is why we're always moving, can't keep still. So here we learn how to open to the everythingness of life, not run away from it, how to keep an inner stillness, an inner balance, to see what's going on outwardly and inwardly with quiet eyes. Having a a heart so big that can encomp- it can encompass everything. I've mentioned before that equanimity really uh, supports metta or loving kindness to come into its fullest, to come into its deepest and highest understanding and experience. It's said that equanimity is love that can encompass everything yet possess nothing. It's how we feel about, we can get to a certain point when we can feel that way about our children, our grandchildren, our elders when they go through the difficult times of their life, and we can hold everything that there is at at that time, their pain, their sorrow, the joys that they've had in their life, and love it all because it's the way it is. We're not pushing anything away. So I witness this very strong, deep, unconditional love and steady balance in a yogi friend of mine uh, who lived on Maui. She moved away since then. Who said that the Dharma's teaching on equanimity helped her through 
really desperate times, extremely trying times. And she gave me permission to tell this story and to read a letter that she had written to me. She said a few years ago, one of her grown sons disappeared. Well, I, I, Steve and I were there when this happened. He just totally disappeared from Maui. He was in his early 20s. He had a younger brother and a sister, and this was uh, the eldest son. Of course, the family did their best to find him, to find out what happened, whether he was still alive, where he was. There was no clue if any of their friends, his friends knew, they weren't telling. And so, basically, he just disappeared, and this happened over a year or two or more. I can't remember the exact timing. They didn't know where he was or uh, what he was doing, but my friend Karen kept a constant inner vigil for him. Wherever he was, she was sending her loving kindness. She was opening to that place in herself that could be compassionate to what was happening without breaking down and losing herself in a in a wave or uh, a sea of guilt or uh, drowning in sorrow. What helped her a lot was her ability to stay open, to stay balanced with equanimity, because she knew she couldn't keep going to try to do her life and sometimes to find out where he was. Um, She couldn't keep clear without the equanimity helping her. It was a great loss. It was a great mystery as the time went by. There was a lot of sorrow, a lot of pain. One of the uh, phrases that helped her was, all beings have their own journey. Though I don't know what that journey is, all beings have their own journey. She was just keeping her heart open, trusting that He's finding his way. He's finding his way. There was no sense that he had died because she said when she sent metta, it didn't kind of fall off a cliff. It said when you do metta and it feels like it it can't get out there or something's happening, that the person you're sending metta to, not for, this is for some people, not for all people, that's when that person is passed away. That's why it's offered not to send metta to those who have passed away because sometimes we can't feel the strength of metta. So she would send her metta and feel like, it's still happening. He's still out there somewhere. All beings have their own journey. So eventually she and her husband sold their beautiful home on Maui, their property, and they decided to travel the world before going to her daughter's place who lived in Europe. Her daughter was going to have a baby. And so they wanted to be present for that. So they went through Asia. And when they were in Asia, um, or sometime just at the time they were leaving Maui, just at that juncture, her son appeared, the one who had gotten lost or disappeared. He appeared. So there was loss. There was gain. There was sorrow. And then there was great, great joy. And There was no way that she was able to handle this except with equanimity. That's why it's said that one of the felt senses of equanimity is that spaciousness of heart, 
that bigness of heart that's able to handle all, not just one thing, not just leaning towards one, grasping towards one, but she was able to handle and open to both of it. After great loss, there was gain. With much sorrow, after that, there was great joy. And so the, the uh, phrases that she used in her equanimity practice, gain and loss, arise and pass away. Joy and sorrow, arise and pass away. This is the truth of life. Just being able to really take that in, not flinch from it, not close down because, you know, is this really true or not? But just to be able to say the truth of life and really open to that deep, deep truth. So while she and her husband were in Asia, he had a medical diagnosis that wasn't good and he had to do surgery right away so that there was a lot of anxiety, a possibility of another loss of life. But she kept open, even though there was fear. The outer condition was very um, inducing of fear inside her heart. She had to face the outer condition because she had to be a support to her husband, not fall apart. So she had to open to that. It's how it is right now. Even though you know she went up and down with it, still she had some measure of equanimity about the outer condition. And she had the inner condition to deal with, the fear, the anxiety, would she lose someone else somehow in illness or in death? And so facing her insides, this is how it is right now inside my heart. So they went through that and it turned out fine. He went through his healing process and then she had her own uh, conditions she had to deal with. So this was like a, like her karma, as she said, that her moon was in feces during this time. <laughs> it was really, really bad. <laughs> so during that time also, she was, I think they were still in India, and then something happened to her eyesight. A lot was probably around her anxiety, where she was losing her eyesight. So she had to have an operation then and there to correct something, can't remember what it was. And so she might lose her eyesight, but okay, she turned out to be okay. So all of this, had she not learned equanimity, uh, the practice ahead of time, she said it would have been very, very difficult. That's not the end. She got to her daughter's place and the the birth of a beautiful baby can't remember whether it was a boy or a girl, but a beautiful baby. And she had emailed us and uh, said, this great joy, great joy, the birth of this uh, new grandchild, the first grandchild. It brought great elation to her heart, and it was great balm to her heart after all she had been through. It wasn't too, too long after that. It, it was several weeks. It could have been more than a month, but only several weeks before she heard the shocking news that her younger son died. Just it was a strange death, a drowning. And she was so close to this son. It was a son that she had uh, practice with in the Shambhala tradition, the Buddhist tradition, 
of the Shambhala teachings. And it, it just absolutely broke her apart. Her heart just felt like it was, you know, no pieces could be put together. But then again, she was able to weather through that, to get through that, to navigate her, her own heart through that difficult, difficult sea that she was going through, the ups and downs of, of all of that. And she did. She got through it. She uh, wrote a letter at the end, and she said, if it weren't for the Dharma, if it weren't for the steadiness that she learned by doing her practice, not just equanimity, but also the Vipassana practice of turning towards what's going on in her own heart and really facing it, not flinching from the truth of what goes on inwardly. It saved her life, she said. And so I'm quoting from her um, one of the letters she wrote. She gave me permission to quote her. She said, I feel most genuine when I can hold in my heart the sorrow of losing Alex alongside the love and joy of who he was. There again, the spaciousness. I'm staying connected. It seems to me this kind of loss can either destroy us or can make us stronger. And I'm determined to learn and grow from it. The Dhamma has been very helpful. So you can see in just her story, the spaciousness, the balance. And when there wasn't any balance, the ability to just come back to a center point, to a point of being able to see all sides and to be able to still carry on through life. So all through this time, the ups and downs, she was able to go through it with deeper and deeper understandings. She didn't try to figure things out too much. She said to me later that she understood deeply, and I must admit with a lot of grace as I saw her go through this, she said that there are unknowable causes and conditions that make a life a life. Can't come to know them all. These unknowable causes and conditions give rise to inward experiences, reactivity. And even that reactivity comes from unknowable causes and conditions. Her ability to just face the outer world and the inner world still continues to inspire me in my own life. So sometimes the metaphor of the sky is used to describe what it feels like for the heart and mind to be infinitely spacious so that it can contain all the dualities and the diversities of the world. This is all part of life. Can we see it with quiet eyes? So in an experiential way, equanimity can be defined as not being thrown off balance, by the events of the world, not being thrown off balance. But if we are thrown off balance by being able to face how we are thrown off balance, thrown off balance, and from being able to face both outer and inward experiences, just come back again 
and be able to be more clear and connected with life. We do have a huge influence over how we respond to the events of life, even though we don't feel like we have control of it. We don't have complete control of life. Indeed, when something arises, when conditions and situations have arisen, they have already arisen. They have already taken place. We can't change them at all. But we can change how we respond to them. We do have a great deal of influence and control about how we respond to life. And this is what we're learning here. When we do this, we can take time to discern. When we have equanimity in that space, we can take time to discern how we can respond to life. What really can help us? What brings benefit to everyone, including ourselves? So this, again, is an often told story. And... um, It's a story about when I was with Manindraji, one of our teachers uh, in the early days of my Dharma life. This uh, went on when he came to live with us for a short time when he needed to have some surgery and uh, he stayed with us in our home. This was before the time um, of my life with Steve. And so he had his surgery and he was going through a healing process and I wanted things to be really beautiful for him as he went through the healing process. But I lived, and I lived in that home with uh, growing children, um, a couple of teenage children, and one daughter who was going, you know, just coming into her hormonal years. So (laughs) it was, you know, quite... um, an experience to it, it was totally uh, not realistic for me to expect that everything was going to be quiet and perfect, but I did want that to happen for Manindraji's sake. So there was one time when there was a big fight between my youngest daughter and her father, and it was so bad that there was screaming and yelling. And there was my daughter running to her room and uh, slamming the door in front of her father. And I didn't know what to do. I was uh, wondering, well, how am I going to handle this? You know, Manindraji has probably never seen this in his life in India with his family. And uh, I wanted to either run away or I wanted to get up and scream myself at my own daughter and her father, stop, you know. But I just kind of sat there, really paralyzed. After my daughter slammed the door, her father, very, very wonderful father, uh, to her and the other children, said, open this door. And she said, no, with all her might. And she, he said, open this door or I'll kick the door in. And she said, go ahead. <laughs> and that's what happened. And so when that happened, it was like, oh, I was embarrassed to high heaven. You know, I thought, 
this is a terrible place for Manindra to be. What is he going to think of me and the family? I had so much attachment to wanting it to be perfect and so much aversion to what was actually going on. Manindra was sitting at the table with me. He was sitting at one corner and I was sitting at another. And I was like just paralyzed in shock at what was going on. He took his arm, his hand, and he placed it on my left uh, forearm and he looked at me with all the calmness and balance in the world. And he said to me, surrender to what's happening. But he said it this way, surrender to the law. The law means the dharma, the way things are. When he says the law, that's what it means, the way things are. So he said, surrender to the law. And I remember this until now, over and over again, when I go through similar experiences where I want things to be a certain way and I'm so clinging to how I want it to be, but it turns out differently. And there's so much aversion to how it is. So it really helped me to feel his presence, to just that moment of experiencing with him, Just remembering that moment gave me a great deal of equanimity, feeling that in my body, in my mind, in my heart. And just the look in his eyes was seeing that world with quiet eyes. I thought he would give me kind of a lecture about it later, like, you should, you know, help your family, blah, blah, blah. No, nothing at all. He just accepted things as they are. These things, he acted as if these things happen in families. He didn't expect it to be a different way. His heart was just a lot more open than my own was with my own family. When he says this is the law, it's simply inviting me to accept the reality of the situation. One time I asked him uh, about a situation, this was before that time, I asked him about why things were so difficult for me. Why in my life did I have to live the life that I did early on in life when I was a single parent and I came to America with three small children as a single parent. I came from uh, the Philippines and I carried with me a very deep kind of resentment and blame and uh, a story over and over again that I was wronged, that why me? Why is it this way for me? And Manindra heard me out for a period of time, but at one time he was, I guess he was totally up to here with hearing me, the story over and over again. And I remember the time when we were going down, I was taking him from our house down to um, some outing out in town. And again, I was driving the car and I was saying to him, why me, poor me, you know, this is happening to me in my life and blaming the others and blah, 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 yada, 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 you know. And finally, he turned to me and he said, this is the law, this is how it is. Because of past circumstances, this has arisen in your life. If you keep Uh, complaining about it, then what you are doing is engendering more and more suffering for yourself. Because that complaining, that blaming 
about what has gone on in the past is going into your karmic stream and will bear fruit in the future. And then you will complain again because, <laughs> because it has become a habit pattern. And then all you will see from your past, from your present, and in your present moment and in your future is a life of blame, a life of com- complaining, a life of poor me. And so he said in his own very, like, sometimes compassion is a sword, like, cut it out. And that's what he said, cut it, stop it, stop blaming, stop this. And if you can stop this, if you can put into your karmic stream understanding, equanimity, an open heart, a way that you can make your future life more full of love and wisdom, then you'll be able to look behind and say, oh, my life had this in it before. In the past was love and wisdom. In the present is love and wisdom. In the future is love and wisdom. Your life will be totally surrounded by love and wisdom. But you have to start now. He said, it's up to you. It's not up to me. In other words, stop telling me your story. (laughs) So I really took that to heart. And I didn't tell that story too many times after that. It, It lessened, but it took time for it to really stop. Our background and circumstances may have influenced who we are now, but we are responsible for who we become. How we respond to life is up to us. It's really up to us. So the reactivity, the far enemy, uh, has two parts, as I mentioned this afternoon. Ill will or aversion to the unpleasant Various manifestations of it are blame, judging, criticizing, impatience, frustration, fear, all of that. And attachment to the pleasant. When we're clinging to how we think it should be or clinging to how we want it to be in the future, then this is attachment. So as we engage in the various facets of our life, how can we... Um, see life with quiet eyes. I mean, it's a question we can, a koan that we can continually be with. It helps me to discern whether I'm drawing or living from a reservoir of inner quietude or just helps me look honestly if I'm just drawing from more and more confusion and doubt, not seeing clearly not seen clearly because not willing, just not willing to face the reactivity in the mind and be able to calm it down with equanimity. Just in that way, it's like we're just kind of resigned to living with uh, confusion and doubt all our lives and just letting ourselves be you know, pushed here and there around by it. When I'm truly honest with myself, all of it comes up. All of the doubt and the, all the three poisons, uh, all the three causes of suffering, deep causes of suffering. But there's also a lot of willingness to see it, to be with it, 
there's less now in the mind and in the heart than there was 30 years ago and even 20 years ago, even 10 years ago. I can see the lessening of and the weakening of those subversive qualities in my heart, in my mind. And when they do come up, there's a greater courage and ability to just open to them because I see how much uh, suffering they cause in the world and in my own heart. So in our training, we're really learning to be with the outer conditions and learning to be with the inner conditions of the world from a very truthful relationship with our inner world, we're able to face the outer world because we see that all that is happening in the outer world, all that we complain about, is right here in this very world that we live from. So this is where we can make the greatest difference in the world, right here in this inner world. When we become familiar with this inner terrain, um, it becomes like, you know, you, you feel a version coming through, and it's just like a bird song. There's more, there's more and more just neutrality, which is a different way of feeling uh, equanimity. Sometimes difficult things arise, and there's an absence of reactivity. That means there's some neutrality in the mind. We don't feel kind of like the gravitas of equanimity, but we just feel kind of the lightness and the transparency of neutrality. And this is, this is a beautiful thing also, very close to equanimity. We're able to rest the mind before it falls into the extremes. So there's a deeper trust that we can handle outer events in the world because we know how to handle inner events. This is where a lot of uh, confidence in the Dhamma comes from because we can handle it. We know how to get through it. If one notices the absence of reactivity, this is a great thing. Sometimes we're not noticing loving-kindness or we don't notice uh, compassion. Sometimes people say in interview or in my life as my friends, they say, I really don't feel that kind of the juiciness of loving kindness or the juiciness of compassion. But sometimes I do feel with a great deal of connection, I feel like there's no reactivity to what's going on. I feel connected with what's going on. But there's not like a reactivity to it. There's no strong aversion, no strong attachment, and there's kind of this neutrality. And indeed, you know, in the Abhidhamma or the uh, Buddhist psychology, when you look up the word metta, there's, you can't find it so much. There's mostly this word adosa. Dosa means ill will, or it, it, it means that kind of hatred. But adosa means the absence of hatred. And that's how metta is described, the absence of hatred. Sometimes we don't feel the juiciness of metta, but we really feel the absence of ill will. And so when you're doing your metta practice, 
if it just feels kind of like there's, there's an absence of ill will there, we come to the difficult person and it's just fine. We can send uh, loving kindness to that person, feeling the absence of ill will, feeling it in that way. So again, with the absence of reactivity, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, in that state of mind you can deal with the situation with calmness and reason. When we feel neutral about a situation, we can go forth and handle it without having uh, our words be filled with, with ways that aren't beneficial. So if we've, say something has happened out there in the world, in our family, in our job situation, or in our school situation, and we react to it, there's always a second chance, even if there's already been reactivity out there. The second chance is to take a look at what the reactivity is, what the inner condition is. Maybe we've said something unkind with our words or with our actions, we've slammed the door or something like that, and we've seen the ill will or the anger there, or our attachment to our point of view when we've already lashed out somehow, then we can have a second chance to turning inward and looking at feeling that experience and being careful that we're not adding anything extra to it, another level of difficulty for us to bear with, another layer of suffering. Oftentimes we have, we lash out or we act out and then we feel inside judgment towards ourselves a kind of a self-castigation, a self-blame, more ill will, layers and layers and layers and layers of pain. It's no wonder that it's very difficult to come to a retreat like this and for things to unlayer themselves. So just to give an example of this, in a conversation with someone, there was a, a kind of, it turned into a heated argument about some point that we were both trying to make on opposite ends of the spectrum. And it became uh, very emotional. And I saw that this person just outwardly was expressing a lot of emotion around the experience. I was feeling it inwardly, but I was really trying to restrain from putting it into words that would hurt or putting it into some kind of action. So the tempers got really heated. I was trying to make my case, and so was this other person. I noticed how strongly that person felt about the situation we were speaking of. And so what I I was practicing, along with being connected, I was practicing some equanimity and saying, okay, this is how it is for her right now. May I just accept it? This is how it is. For some reason, she feels very, very strong about this situation. So I wasn't trying to take... I was doing my best not to take it personally, although I was really feeling heated. You know, lightning lightning would strike me once in a while, and I would feel like, boy, I'm going to strike back any moment. But refraining, restraining. And so saying, this is how it is for you, and then seeing the heat inside of me, this is how it is for me, 
I'm not very stable right now. I don't think I can trust myself to say the right thing. So I decided to say, I think I'm going to wait until I can be in a better place because I can't think clearly right now. I'm a little bit confused. I said this out loud. I really can't think clearly right now. I think I'm going to wait until there's a time when I can think clearly. She said, yes, that's true. You can't think clearly right now. (laughs) Oh, that really, really stung, you know. (laughs) So I really had to put that Dharma duct tape on my mouth. And, you know, I'm still having residue from that just kind of res- relaxing around the heart. But, I mean, things are fine. Things are fine between us. That just was that moment, and I don't have to make that moment be all of our life and our whole relationship. But it really took a lot to, you know, just look at the inner situation and not lash out again. This is how it is here. In time, we're, we were able to discuss the matter and Things were fine. I came across this from uh, writing from Mother Teresa of Calcutta and how she had to struggle with this in her life also. Just being very, had to be very aware of her inner world because she was in a situation of a lot of praise and blame, a lot of fame and disrepute in, because she was the head of a, a big, uh, wonderful order in Calcutta, Order of Nuns, helping a lot of people. But she too was blamed. She too had ill repute in her life. Also, she was highly praised. There were a lot of ups and downs in her own life. So this was her prayer in her own way uh, to, uh, to Jesus. She says, Deliver me, O Jesus, from the desire of being loved, from the desire of being extolled, from the desire of being honored, from the desire of being praised, being preferred, being approved, from the desire of being popular. Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being humiliated, from the fear of being despised, the fear of suffering rebukes, from the fear of being slandered, Deliver me, O Jesus, from the fear of being ridiculed, from the fear of being suspected. And all of this and probably more, you know, happened in her life. So I'm always struck by her humility and her ability to really be truthful and honest about what's going on inside of her own heart. Not being ashamed to bring it out in public because... It's part of our humanness. So the far enemy reactivity, I spoke about that mostly in, this, in the talk tonight because most of what we experience is that of the, of the hindrances, uh, hatred and uh, attachment. These are the forms of uh, reactivity. So another extreme opposite of equanimity, I'll speak with a little more here and, and we'll talk more about it during our daily afternoon sessions. This is the near enemy, 
And it's called the near enemy because it can seem like equanimity, because we don't feel reactive to what's going on. But it's because we feel disconnected to what's going on out there. And we're disconnected with our own hearts. Mostly we feel numb inside or closed down. Or we're, we're afraid to open. We don't feel we have enough confidence to open to what's going on to ourse- in ourselves and towards others. So this, uh, far, this near enemy is called indifference or apathy. It can be like a callousness, sometimes even a cold callousness. It, it can go to that extreme. There's a distancing a feeling of emotional emptiness sometimes. We're in denial. It's a resignation. Okay, this is how it is, and a feeling not just of resignation, but of helplessness. And then we just stay there, because it's not... Remember, equanimity is not just resigning ourselves to what's going on, but it's taking action when we need to. But in this kind of resignation, we feel so helpless that we don't take any action at all. We don't do anything at all about what's going on. Sometimes it's a feeling of, I don't care what's going on. It goes to that kind of coolness or coldness. So the practice is to be honest with what's going on, to really get more connected with the inner feelings that are going through our hearts. And equanimity can also help us with this when we incline the mind towards opening to what's going on inside. And sometimes I use the phrase, may I open to what's going on in my heart with gentleness, with clarity, with equanimity. And I said this, this phrase this afternoon. So it's important to make the point that being spacious, balanced, and patient is not about just standing still and saying, you know, crossing the street, for example, exaggerated example, and a truck is coming and saying, this is how it is, and just not get out of the way. Definitely we step out of the way, or we do something about what needs to be done. So I just want to... Uh, help you remember this because sometimes we can remember more by a story than by theoretical terms. Um, A few years ago I was in a shopping center and I went to buy some gifts for people who were on our staff after the end of a retreat on Maui. And uh, I was just walking in at the entrance with a friend of mine uh, who's a nun and uh, she's she's quite a quiet person, quite reserved. And as I was walking in, not too far away from me, like away from here to the wall at the end, there was a young man. He was standing against the wall, and he looked a little out of it. And along came another man, a young man, and he started pummeling this man who was leaning against the wall, hitting him, kicking him with all of his might, and the young man who was against the wall was, he might have been under the, some kind of influence. So he was just kind of um, took, uh, went into a fetal position and he was down on the ground. People were walking by, not doing anything. 
and um, kind of afraid, you know, to get in between and do anything about it. So earlier, like a few years earlier, I had taken a model mugging course. Do you all know what that is, some of you? It's a course when you you go into this um, experience where you learn how to protect yourself against people who might be attacking you. And uh, I went with my 14-year-old daughter. I thought it would help her, but it really helped me. (laughs) And um, it's when you you really learn how to fight with all your might when somebody's attacking you. And so these people, these teachers, they're kind of uh, martial arts teachers. They put on all this armor so you can hit and do whatever you need to do to defend yourself. It, that was really hard for me to do, but I, I did. I was able to. But one of the first things that you learn is to shout with all your might. That was the very first part of the lesson, is to when you're seeing something like that happen to you, or you see it happening to somebody else, you shout with all your might. Say things that are going to get that person off your back or off of somebody else's back. So right away it came to me. And I ran towards that person, uh, those two people. I stayed a safe distance, and I yelled at the top of my lungs, Stop it. Somebody help. Get off of that person. Four-letter words, everything you could think of, you know. (laughs) And (laughs) so at some point, the security guard came, or a person in uniform came, tore them apart, And the person who was attacking started running towards me. I went to the side, and he wasn't running towards me, really, but I thought he might be, so he was just running away. And at that point, during all that time, I had enough inner sense to know what to do. I could see, this is what's happening right now out there. What's happening right now in here was, of course I'm afraid. Of course there was anxiety, but also there was this, I know what to do. I know what to do. So I rushed forth, and I did what I had to do. So you don't just stand back and be like a doormat. You speak out. You act in the right way so that you're not harming or you're causing uh, what is going to be harmed. You're causing non-harming if there's harming taking place. It's really important to understand that, that it doesn't mean apathy or disassociation from what's happening. You really do something when you need to do something. So there can be a lot of, uh, there can be a lot going on in the mind, but somehow there's that point where you feel balanced. You feel like there's, you're in the center of the storm and you can act. You can do what you need to do in life. Even when there's turmoil outside, when there's turmoil inside, you can still act. I have a lot of beautiful stories about Manindraji, which will be in his book, a book about him at the end of the retreat, but no time now. So equanimity has enormous strength that allows our practice to move more deeply into the liberating truths of life. Because when there's no reactivity, there's an incredible clarity of mind. And it's really able to rest in the grace of wisdom. Really see deeply, deeply, deeply 
how things are always changing and how it's so ephemeral, really. We must be in this world in the best way we can, but in a very deep way we see the temporariness of all of life. We see the selflessness of all of life. We see in a very deep way how we can be liberated from the ways that cause suffering. The Buddha described and praised equanimity, saying it is abundant, exalted, immeasurable, without hostility, without ill will. At the end, um, towards the end of Manindra's life, I remember and hold this vision very clearly of him, the way he taught me to be in my own life, to have this spaciousness and this balance within the spaciousness, to have a place of a center where the, the mind can rest in before it fell into extremes. It was on um, one of the last times I saw him when we, we went to a pilgrimage in India to a couple of the holy spots. And before uh, we left, after we'd been to Bodh Gaya where the Buddha was enlightened and Sarnath where the Buddha gave his first sermon, we went to Varanasi where we were going down um, the Ganges River uh, it, it takes your own Dharma teacher to say, I'd like us to go down the Ganges River so you can see dead bodies floating on the river. It's just a way that opens us to death and all the aspects of life, you know, not to flinch away from any, any of it. So this was before dawn. The sun hadn't even risen yet. And we got on a boat. And um, Manindra was sitting... Uh, to one side of me, and my friends were on the other side of me. And it might have been the last time that I would have seen Manindraji. And so uh, it was such a beautiful morning. It was very quiet and placid on the river. And on the left side, the sun was coming up over the horizon, the birth of a new day. Beautiful, beautiful, golden day uh, was coming. And so here was this birth of a new day on one side. And the other side, I indeed saw the bodies uh, that were burning on the fires of the burning ghats along, the, along this river. And I thought, here it is, birth on one side, death on another side. Can I open my heart to the whole thing? And then a lot of joy and a lot of gratitude about my teacher sitting beside me, and I might never see him again. I did get to see him before he died after that, but this might be the last time he was in his 80s. And so holding his hand and feeling the joy of having him nearby, and then on the banks of the river, seeing all the families with their sorrow around the death of their loved ones, And here it is, joy on one side, sorrow on another side. This is how it is. I loved, always loved being in India for opening just to the rawness and the nakedness of life, being able to open to it all. The beauty, the rawness, 
the birth and the death, um, all of it that you see in life. And this is how I remember my time in India and the time with Manindraji and the lessons that he taught me about really opening your heart to it all, not flinching away from anything. What he really wanted for all of us as his students was to see deeply into the nature of all of life and to really be freed from the suffering that we experience from being attached to anything, averse to anything, confused by anything. So I'd like to end this with um, this writing by the Third Zen Patriarch, which was the way that all of our teachers are teaching us on this path of the Dharma. The great way is not difficult for those who are unattached to their preferences. Let go of longing and aversion and everything will be perfectly clear. Cling to a hair's breadth of distinction and heaven and earth are set apart. If you want to realize the truth, don't be for or against. As vast as infinite space, it is perfect and lacks nothing. Because you select and reject, you can't perceive the true nature. Don't get entangled in the world. Don't lose yourself in emptiness. Be at peace with all things, and all errors will disappear by themselves. So let's sit. Let the words dissolve. you. I went a little over time. I apologize for that. And uh, so we'll have 20 minutes of walking. And so Steve says, come back at 10 past. So those who are doing yogi jobs have time. So cool off, have some tea, take a walk.